it working, Todd? Okay. Oh, good morning. Are you a child of God? Amen. 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 Well, we're actually going to be kind of touching on that this morning, being a child of God, more so being chosen of God. How special is that? All right. Okay, hold it down here in the first two rows here. Now. I, I, have, <laughs> I have my Barry White voice on today, uh, battling a head cold all week, and, and uh, I'm not, I don't think I'm contagious. Uh, Elroy wouldn't shake my hand this morning. He's like, I love you, Tim, but stay away from me. No, he didn't do that. He didn't do that. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter, the first letter of Peter, Peter's epistle. Everybody there, amen? All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you thankful that we are your child, thankful that you chose us. So, Father, as we just look at the first couple of verses of Peter, Father, your servant, your apostle, Father, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would instruct this morning. Bring about the truths that are contained within your living word for the edification of your church, for the building up of the saints, but, Father, ultimately for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. This morning I want to do something a little bit different than I normally do, and that this morning's message is more of an introduction to 1 Peter as I'm going to be preaching out of 1 Peter as a series for because we preach every two weeks, probably for the foreseeable future. And so I'm going to cover the background of Peter's epistle and uh, walk through just the two first verses in his opening greeting. And then, oh, I do hope to provide uh, a hermeneutical, if you will, an interpretation of what Peter was saying just within these two verses I hope for you to walk away with today exactly what Peter is saying in those two verses as it relates to you and I as children of God. And so let me just give you some backdrop on 1 Peter, the epistle of Peter. First, it was written around A.D. 64, okay? And it was written um, before the Gospels, but as Paul's letters date earlier to that. And during this time, Nero was the emperor of Rome, and there was persecution in Rome under the hands of Nero. If you remember, he burnt Christians at the stake in order to illuminate his garden. Peter was a leader of the apostles, one of the first two called along with his brother Andrew. And yet, as an apostle, he only wrote two letters, the first Peter and obviously second Peter, and shortly thereafter was martyred. Some theologians believe Peter, although he could speak Greek, probably didn't write his own letters, but were transcribed by his fellow companion, Silas, who was able to speak Greek and also write Greek. But make no mistake, these words are of Peter as inspired by God. The letter was written predominantly to Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles and Jews 
And they were in the northern churches of Asia, which is modern-day Turkey. Turkey today is predominant by Islam. But at one time, it was the virgining birth of the church and the ministry of Peter and Paul, as Paul was more or less in the southern part of Asia. And although we, there's evidence that Peter may have even ministered to these churches and even visited these churches in northern Asia, to whom he writes this letter. Now this letter has a tone of a pastor who is encouraging those to whom it is addressed. Peter is considered the apostle of hope, whereas Paul is considered the apostle of faith, and John is considered to be the apostle of John, and you can derive that from the epistles that they wrote. Now this letter that Peter is writing is a letter of encouragement and exhortation to its recipients as they're living in a world that is growing increasingly hostile towards them, leading to some persecution and to some suffering. In fact, the major theme of this letter lends to Peter's encouragement in the words used, in that we are to live a holy life in the face of a hostile world that causes and produces suffering and persecution to the saints being encouraged by the living hope as we look towards our future glory in Christ. So let's begin by looking at the first verse. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. As I stated earlier, Peter was one of the first apostles chosen by Jesus, along with his brother Andrew, along the sea, where he told him to... Drop your nets and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And that's exactly what Peter and Andrew did. Apostles were men chosen by Christ, by himself, with the purpose of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and laying the foundations of doctrine within the church, to establish the church. In order to be an apostle, one had to be a witness of the resurrection of Christ, chosen by Christ himself, and have the ability to perform signs and wonders, as we know that the apostles were able to do. In most Reformed churches, which we are one, we do not hold to a present-day apostleship. As the time of the apostles has passed, as it was for a specific time and for a specific Place. And having been replaced with our canonized Word of God, the role of pastors and teachers, and by missionaries, because the Greek word apostolos means being sent with the message. And we accomplish that through the modern day church and pastors and missionaries. According to Scripture, Paul, in his own words, was the last apostle. For in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, it says, Last of all, as to one ultimately born, he appeared to me also. As we know, on the road to Damascus, Paul was approached by Jesus himself and also laid under his instruction for quite a period of time. You know, when we think of Peter as an apostle, I see several things. First, Peter was a rough and unrefined and uneducated fisherman. We know that to be true. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, they were amazed 
that Peter could preach such a sermon and say such things to the leaders of the synagogue being an uneducated fisherman. How's that happen? He was called into discipleship and ministry by Jesus, as we've already discussed. And he spent nearly three years under Christ's discipleship, learning and understanding the mysteries of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Three years. That's a great mentoring time. Although Peter, if you remember his exchange with Jesus, wanted a little bit more than three years. After being restored and empowered by the Holy Spirit, he preached on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 souls were baptized and added to the church. He went from a coward who betrayed Christ to a courageous apostle preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. What this reveals is how tr the transforming power of the Holy Spirit can transform anyone. Yeah, Peter was special. But the Holy Spirit can transform you as well into a mighty instrument for His purpose, for His ministry, and for His glory. If you would have asked me back in 1993 that I would be standing here preaching the gospel, I would have never believed you. If you would have asked my mom, whether I'd be standing up here preaching the gospel, she'd have laughed at you. But when God the Father called me by His grace, transformed my life through the Holy Spirit, well, here I am. It's the same for you. God has called you. He desires to do a work in you for His kingdom. And he wants to transform you into a mighty vessel he will use for his kingdom's sake. I've seen many of you in this church over the periods of time that I've been here since 1994, God call you, equip you, transform you into a mighty vessel used by him for his glory. And praise God that we have gifted men and women in this church that have allowed the Holy Spirit to move in their life and to transform them into who you are today. I remember Tim when I first started coming in 1994. I remember Todd when he first started going to a Bible study. I remember my brother Ron, who I first shared the word with. I remember my brother Mike, who I met in Korea. And we weren't Christians then. When I was saved, I had no idea what I was doing or where I was going. One thing I knew, he had me. And I was going to go wherever he lead me. That's what the transforming power of the Holy Spirit can do. That's what it did in Peter's life, and that's what it can do in your life. And in Peter's life, it was just three short years that he was able to preach that message and bring thousands to the kingdom, obviously under the power and instruction of the Holy Spirit. If anyone in here this morning feels that they can't be used of God or feel like God is not using them, rest assured, God has a plan for your life, and as His Word says, He will fulfill His purpose in you and use you if you are willing. Peter then continues 
to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter's letter is addressed to the elect. Now, what does it mean when Peter says to the elect? The word used here is a Greek word, eklektos, which means chosen by God for salvation through Jesus Christ. That's what it means. But what is election? What, what, what Peter is really talking about here is something that we have identified as the doctrine of election or predestination. You might have heard of those terms. So what is that? Here's a little bit more of a formal definition. Election is the act of God and His predetermined choice before the foundations of creation where He chose those who will be saved by faith through His Son, Jesus Christ, in no way due to the merit of those being saved. In essence, God chooses those whom are saved. It is a mystery as to how and why. And there are many facets to this doctrine that we just simply do not have time to go into this morning. And I would encourage you to study. But remember what Ephesians 2.8 says. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. The doctrine of election is so prevalent throughout the New Testament. It's mentioned in every single gospel. And it's mentioned predominantly in the epistles. For Peter to use this term within his greeting in such a passing way where he doesn't stop and actually explain what's going on shows the acceptance of this doctrine in the early church. The doctrine of election in fact, it's the first step in the order of salvation. And the order of salvation is God's choice, God's call, God's regeneration, God's conversion, God's justification, God's adoption, God's sanctification, which we'll talk about here in a few minutes, then perseverance, then death, then glorification if you want to accept that order. But first is his choice. Then he calls. Then he regenerates you by his Holy Spirit. Then a conversion occurs where we confess our sin and unrighteousness. We call upon the Lord in faith. Then we're justified. It's a legal term because we broke the law. Therefore, we're justified before the Lord. Then we're brought in as a child of God to adoption. Then we begin the work of sanctification. There's an initial work and a secondary work. But then there's the preservation of the saints, how he keeps you. Then our death, and then our glorification at the end, which is the ultimate of our salvation, the inheritance we will receive. You know, a great verse that really encapsulated a lot of these elements is found in Romans 8, 28, verse 30. It says, And we know that for those who love God in all things, work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among brothers. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What a great verse. Now, why is this important to understand, the doctrine of election? Tim, why are you getting in the weeds on this? I think the best way to answer this question is found in why Peter even mentioned it in his first two verses. It's to provide comfort and assurance to the dispersion, to the dispersed believers in the midst of persecution in following Jesus Christ. It's meant as an encouragement. Peter is reminding his audience as to who they are. They are God's chosen. Think about that. God chose them. That means he has them. According to Scripture, we deserve destruction for our sin. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. And we were lost in our sins before God chose us. There was no hope for redemption unto ourselves. We were entitled to nothing. That certainly doesn't fit in the world we live in today, does it? We are destined. We were destined for destruction. And yet God chose us and pulled us out of the path of destruction and saved by His grace. Think of it in these terms as a great torrent of water is rushing down and you're lost in the midst of it. The power and the force of the water cannot allow you to get to shore or to grab a hold of a tree or a limb or some rock. And as you are moving down this stream at a fast pace, heading towards what you know to be a waterfall and your ultimate destruction, God reaches down and plucks you out of that torrent and sets you on the shore and saves you. That is what God did for you and me. I don't know about you, but this brings me great comfort when I reflect on the fact that God, who made the universe and fashioned the stars and created all things and holds them in the balance of His hand, through His sovereignty, chose you. When He chose you, He bound by His promises to keep you and is keeping you. And what we call this keeping is the preservation of the saints. Now, I want to read to you something, if you would give me the opportunity. This is out of the Westminster Confession of Faith, right? It's an old book, but a good book. I recommend you to have this book because even in the back, it lists hundreds of questions that you might have about God, salvation, and it gives you those answers, and it's tried, and it's true, and it's been tested over time. But I'm just going to read to you what it says about the preservation of saints because when God cho chooses you, He keeps you. He keeps you. Listen to what it says about the preservation of saints. They whom God hath accepted in His, excuse me, <clears throat> they whom God hath accepted in His beloved, effectually called, and sanctified by His Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly preserved therein to the end, and be eternally saved. This preservation of the saints depends not upon their own free will, 
but upon the immutability, meaning unchanging character of God, of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit, and of the seed of God within them, the triune God. And the nature of the covenant of grace, from which all ariseth also with certainty and infallibility thereof. You know what this means in short? He has you. He will never forsake you. He will never leave you. You are eternally His. That brings me great comfort when I face trials and tribulations in my life, knowing that God has not abandoned me. He won't abandon me because His promise says He won't. Isaiah 41.10, you've heard me preach on that verse. He will help you. He will uphold you in his righteous right hand. He will strengthen you. So, you know, sometimes we go through trials and tribulations and we feel like God has abandoned us. He hasn't. He never will. It goes against his character. He will strengthen you. He will help you. He will uphold you with his righteous right hand. Remember that when you go through trials and tribulation. It is a great comfort knowing that. And yeah, maybe we're going to suffer some trials and tribulations. And I know my wife stood up and talked about her dad. I still have hope for a healing. We can believe him for that. He's our healer. Look on the wall. And he's going through a trial. We've been through trials and tribulations. And God will strengthen you through that because you're his. I like, I like what Paul says, though. And we need to keep this in perspective. In Romans 8.18, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Your life on this earth is but a vapor, almost unreg unregisterable in all of eternity. What we will be in eternity, our life will be but a vapor. And even though we might have to go through some difficult things, maybe even persecution, it cannot be compared to the glory that we will see in the time we're called home. That's what Peter's trying to infuse into his audience. See, when I got a head cold, I can't come up with words real quick. Now, God choosing us before the creation of the world is a true mystery. And I will not stand up here and tell you that I have all the answers as it relates to the doctrine of election. Nor I don't think anybody can stand up here and relay all the mysteries of the doctrine of election because it is a mystery, but it does bring good comfort. Paul also uses the term exiles. Your Bibles might say pilgrims, sojourners, foreigners. So what does Peter mean by this? First, you will see throughout 1 Peter, Peter uses Old Testament verbiage and symbolism to identify those in whom he's writing to. Peter's not speaking of a literal exile. But he's using symbolism of the Jewish exile to bring about his point. 
and that this world in which they lived is not their true home. It's not their true home. Their home lies in heaven. For Philippians 3.20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be reminded of that. Continuously. Our citizenship, by virtue of the saving grace of God, has transferred it to a heavenly citizenship and an inheritance that we're later going to see in chapter 1. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. That's out of Colossians 1.13. Now why this is important for Peter to express is because Peter wants his audience to understand that their true citizenship lies, not in this world, not of this dominion of darkness, even though they may be in the midst of it. They're not of it. And that they are not to love anything in this world and not to be conformed to this world and thus compromise their true citizenship. You know, look, we, we live in the greatest country that has ever existed, in my opinion. Oh, we're not without our problems and our history. But we're truly blessed. Over the last 15 years or so, I've seen a change in this country's morality, integrity, politics, and policy that, in my opinion, are not good. I served 20 years in the Air Force. Proud of that service. Now I'm seeing policies in that force that I just can't seem to wrap my head around. What we value as a country in the past is now on the chopping block of cancel culture. I'm not saying anything new to you. I think you all see it too. And at times I find myself getting upset over what I see and how it might impact me and my freedoms. Then I have to take a step back. Remind myself that my true citizenship is in heaven, not here. That I'm a sojourner here. I'm not to be friends with this world. I'm called to be here for a purpose. For his purpose. I'm not to be so engaged in this world that I forget that I am a child of God and what he has called me to do. When we invest too much of ourselves into this world, whether it be politics, social justice, environmentalism, or pick your cause, you have the potential, a very real potential, of replacing what is truly important and lose focus as to whom you really serve. Once we embrace the truth that we are exiles and sojourners in this world, we will not long for the things of this world and compromise our fellowship with Christ. I find myself, because I get so invested in certain things, when that world begins to change and teeter, I get frustrated and upset. Well, guess what? The world is always going to change, and it's going to teeter, and it may not change to the way you like it. And if you're so attached to it, it's going to affect you. And it's going to disrupt the peace that you have in Christ because you forgot who you serve and what is our true focus. 
Then he says to the dispersion in Pontius, Galatius, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bethnia. Now, I've already kind of commented on that in the beginning, so let me continue on with the next verse. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of His blood. Now, having highlighted the doctrine of election, now Peter reveals something truly special that we need to grasp. If you examine the scripture that I just read closely, you will see that within our salvation, something awesomely unique has occurred. And that is that our salvation is by the work of the triune God. So let's take a look at that. First, we see that the foreknowledge of God the Father reveals the action of God the Father in choosing those whom are His through His predestined choice as we have already discussed. That is the role of God the Father for whom He choose. Then He identifies God the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. Now what does that mean? It's a big word. When we are saved and we receive the Holy Spirit, we are positionally sanctified. We are set apart as holy. To the Lord, first and foremost, that's why we have another banner up here that says, Christ our sanctifier. And because of that, we're positionally sanctified. We are separated and marked as holy unto God. At the same time, we're not called out of this life in the world, right? We still live here, and we have the propensity to sin, and that's why we have progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification is whereby Christ makes His Holy Spirit available to us, and the Holy Spirit then applies the work of Christ in our lives until the day we are called home to glory. Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Let me simplify that. God did not just choose you and then say, Do your best in your strength. Hope you do well. Bless you. No. He gave you His Holy Spirit. Not only to sanctify you, to set you apart, to take you out of that dominion of darkness, but to infuse you with the power to live an obedient life to Christ. He's done everything for you. All we have to do is be obedient and rely upon that power. And let me tell you this. When you obey the Lord Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, you unlock the power to be obedient. But if we make a willful choice after being tempted, that's our choice. God didn't do that. We did. And from the very foundations of the garden, it was a choice in the flesh. But guess what? Even when we choose the flesh because of the power of the Holy Spirit, because of God's grace, guess what? When we confess our sin and unrighteousness, He will forgive us. His blood did that. So let's talk about that. Because God the Son as the verse says, sprinkled his blood. 
Obviously, the sprinkling of his blood is for the forgiveness of our sins. For there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. At the same time, there's something very special going on when Paul uses that word sprinkling of the blood. Did you know in the Old Testament that the sprinkling of blood occurred three times? The first time was during the establishment of the Mosaic Covenant or the Sinai Covenant. We see that in Exodus 24, 5 through 8. Secondly, it was in the ordination of Aaron and his son. Who was Aaron and his sons? Those who are in Ron's class, who are Aaron and his sons? Priests. Finally, at the purification ceremony of a cleansing of a leper, Leviticus 14, 6-7. Are the scriptures coming to you from the New Testament as to the correlation between these three sprinklings of bloods and what Christ did? Okay. Well, let's look at them. First, we have a new covenant in Jesus Christ through the shedding blood of Him. Matthew 26, 27 says, And He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. The new covenant. By way of Christ's shed blood. Our salvation is through that new covenant. Next, we see Peter in his own epistle, later on in chapter 2 of this same epistle, identifying you and me as a royal priesthood. Why is that significant? Because back in the Old Testament, only priests can go into the holies, and only the high priest can go into the holies of holies where the tabernacle was. They would do that once a year. Guess where we as Gentiles were. Oh, we, we were way out. Way out. Past the gate. Not allowed to come in. Because we weren't Jews. But when Christ died on the cross, He split the veil in two. And guess what? We now have access to the holies of holies through the Holy Spirit and the work of the Lord and the, and the covenant of Jesus Christ. We can approach the throne of grace at any time, at anywhere, in a time of need. We need no other person to get us to the holies of holies except through Jesus Christ, who is our high priest. And we can now be in the holies of holies. Finally, we are cleansed by our sin. Ephesians 1.7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So when we put this all together, we see something very special in our salvation is just not some thoughtless decision or haphazard choice that God has made. It was coordinated. It was intentional. It was purposeful. By way of the triune God, we were chosen, sanctified, and atoned. This reveals how precious you are. This reveals how important you are. This reveals how much God loves you. And that He orchestrated this to save you. You know, one of the purposes that we do with discipleship early on with new believers 
is to reveal to them what happened. What happened? I think if we all think about our own salvation experience where the Lord's word just opened up our heart to an understanding that we're a sinner lost in our sin and we're in need of redemption in the light of the righteousness of Jesus Christ by way of revelation by the Holy Spirit. And we yielded our lives to the Lord and we cried out, Lord, forgive me for my sin and unrighteousness. Please save me as I put my trust and belief in you as my Savior. We've all been there, I hope. For some of you, it was an immediate decision because you went to an event. For others, it was a prolonged period of time where you wrestled with this and the hounds of heaven wouldn't let you go. So whether it was a long period of time or an immediate event, we got to understand what happened. This is what happened. It was orchestrated. It was coordinated. And it was intentional. Brothers and sisters, the Trinity was involved in every aspect of your salvation. That's how special you are. So within just two verses, and you guys are probably sitting there thinking, Tim, how could you have gotten that out of two verses? Oh, there's way more. There's way more. I had to cut this down. But within just two verses, Peter reminds the churches in northern Asia, that they are elect of God, chosen by His grace, set apart and holy, saved through the coordinated, intentional, and purposeful works of the triune God, and all of that to encourage them, to lift them up, to build them up in the face of persecution and suffering. So what do these two verses mean for you and me? It means the same thing. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world that is very similar to the world in which Peter wrote those letters to. The world at times is hostile to our faith, a world that is increasingly becoming ignorant of God and His Word and His ways. We will be misunderstood. We will be mistreated. And our freedoms will become increasingly reduced. We may even find ourselves in the midst of persecution, as our brothers and sisters have in Africa and all other continents in the world, our brothers and sisters in China and other places. So how do we respond to that? How do we endure? Well, just within the opening greeting of Peter's letter, we see a wonderful encouragement and that God chose you. And that you're precious to Him. And that it was His desire to redeem you. It was His desire to make you His. And because of that, we can stand on the promises of God that He will keep us. Because He's a sovereign God. All things are allowed by Him for His good will and His good purpose, and He will keep you in them. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Peter's letter. Thank You, Father, that we are chosen in You. Thank You that it was of no merit of us. 
other than simply putting our faith in you. Father, we do live in a world that's changing, and some of those changes are frustrating, they're scary, they upset us. But Father, our true citizenship is in you, for that's where you called us. So let us be about your purpose, Lord. And as we continue on in 1 Peter, I just pray that you would just continue to encourage this church and each and every member in this church on how to live their life in a hostile word, in a hostile world, in a holy way. And I just thank you that you will show us that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please stand and join us.